Acts chapter 11 um, this morning, and we're going to just kind of work our way through it. Acts 11, 19 to 30, as uh, Jimler just read for us. Um, we are now in week 20 of this series, so you can, if you want to go back and watch those, they're on YouTube, uh, they're on our website, you can find them there. Um, one of the things I noticed, I've been living here five years now in Maryland, moved here from Florida, but one of the things I moved, one of the things I noticed when I moved here was that the term Christian uh, has a bit of a wider potential meaning here than it did where I lived in Florida, probably because it's the South, maybe a little more Bible belty, whatever. Um, but where I grew up in Newport Ritchie, or as we like to call it, Newport Nowhere, um, the term Christian, right, basically meant sort of middle of the road uh, evangelical, kind of like our church. Like this is what people meant when they said the word Christian. Uh, if it came up in conversation, you said, I'm a Christian, they would pretty much assume that you were some sort of evangelical. And I know that that word is like loaded with all kinds of meaning now, but um, that that's pretty much what people kind of meant. Even when I lived in Orlando and I, and I became a pastor and started doing ministry there, um, this still held pretty true. I'd be out in the community, you know, maybe, I don't know why this is like the most common place where these conversations start for me is when I get my hair cut because I'm like trapped. And they're like, so you running errands today? And I'm like, no. And they're like, well, what do you do that you're out and about in the two o'clock in the afternoon? And I'm like, well, I'm a pastor. And then they're like, oh, you only work Sundays? Ha ha, right? And they do that whole thing. Uh, and so then I would say, well, I'm a pastor. Oh, what kind of church? And I say it's a Christian church. And then I have to say it's a Protestant church. And then I have to say, well, it's, it's like an evangelical Protestant church. And then we usually get into a conversation about what does evangelical mean? Is that like a voting block? And I'm like, well, it, I mean, it's like that now, but actually, and then I'm like, there's actually a historic four definition and it gets all nerdy and weird. And, but that term Christian meant something pretty specific when I lived in that little town in Florida. It means a lot more different things when I moved here. It can mean Catholic. It could mean, uh, it can mean a bunch of different kinds of Protestant. There's much more variety here than the town I grew up in. And so I find myself far more often trying to explain what I mean when I say that I'm a Christian. Uh, but here's what's interesting about this text, right? What we see is that the earliest Christians, um, they, they are starting to have to deal with this as well, right? We saw in verse 26, if you heard it, that it wasn't until Antioch, it wasn't until this point or this city that followers of Jesus are actually referred to as Christians. Before that, they're just called the way, uh, or, or there's a few different nicknames. And what's likely is that this term actually came from those who were not part of the church. Uh, they, they were not themselves part of this movement of Jesus followers that, like I said, had been known until this point as just the way, which I think is a much cooler name. Uh, although Christian has the word Christ in it, so I'm not doing anything with that. But the way is kind of cool sounding. So, so what's apparent is that so many people are coming to faith in Jesus in Antioch uh, that the city needs a way to describe them. Like they start to have to like, you know, those people that are doing that thing. Oh, those Christians. And so um, the, the followers themselves, probably out of kind of honor and worship, wouldn't have wanted to call themselves by a term built on the name of Christ because it's such an important holy name. Uh, it's the people living around these followers of Jesus in Antioch that begin to call them Christians. Now, the followers of Jesus were using other nicknames. Like I said, the way they were called the disciples, the saints, the believers, brethren, right? They kind of had these internal names for one another. Uh, like I use community of faith a lot to talk about the church. Uh, on top of that, 
The Jews in that city uh, would never have named them Christians because Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. And so to call them Christ or Christians, uh, followers of the Messiah for Jews would have been unthinkable for them. Uh, They wouldn't have done it. And so the people of Antioch, they see this vibrant spiritual movement happening, uh, which honestly probably freaks them out a little bit. And we'll, we'll see some of that later on in Acts. And so they trying to find a term to describe it that will make sense. They take the Greek name for Messiah. They add a Latin suffix onto it and they produce like a hybrid word that doesn't actually exist yet. Uh, and that word becomes what we today in English have as Christian. Now, we have to understand that this name, as good and as true as it is, right? It's a good thing to be called a Christian if you are one. For these early Christians, for these followers of the way, this is also probably a derogatory term. This is not a term of honor or a term of endearment. It's probably a costly term for these Antiochian Christians. So before we dive into the content for today, let's just do a little background on Antioch as a city. I have a map of uh, where Antioch is located. I know it's absolutely way too small on these screens, but nothing I can do about it. So I don't know if you can see it, but down at the very bottom there, there's a green dot. That's Jerusalem. Up a little bit is Damascus. The sea to the left is the Mediterranean Sea. And then up the river there, you can see sort of what at, kind of what looks like Chesapeake Bay a little bit, right? There's the, Anti- the city of Antioch and Tarsus to the north of it. And so ancient Antioch is located about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. It's about 20 miles east of the Mediterranean coast on the Orantis River. Uh, there, this is where Tarsus and the Tarsus and the Lebanon mountains sort of come together and the river sort of dumps out into the ocean. And so during the first century, this is the third largest city in the world. So this is an important city. Uh, it's behind only Rome and Alexandria. It is a metropolitan place. It is, uh, it is a melting pot for at least five cultures. There's Greek, there's Roman, there's Jewish, there's Arab, there's Persian cultures all in this place. Now, the Jews in the city of Antioch made up about a seventh of the population, and they actually had like legal permission to follow their own sort of ways and laws in their own neighborhoods. So that's pretty uh, unique. Um, Antioch is known for its chariot racing. Uh, it's known for being a hedonistic place like this would be the sin city of the ancient world, the Las Vegas, so to speak. Right. Um, Antioch is most famous, though for its worship of the goddess Daphne. Uh, Daphne is the goddess. Her, her temple actually stood just about five miles outside of the city in a laurel grove, in a grove of laurel trees. And so Apollo's famous pursuit of Daphne there, the god Apollo pursues uh, the goddess Daphne. That is reenacted day and night by men of the city and by uh, priestesses who are actually temple prostitutes. So this is what's going on in Antioch. Uh, even throughout even throughout the Roman world itself, uh, to say the morals of, of Antioch or the morals of Daphne is actually a euphemism for like depravity. So if you would say that to someone, oh, they have the morals of Daphne, that means they're like a really hedonistic person. Even uh, the Roman poet Juvenal uh, critiqued Rome, or maybe it's Juvenal, I don't know how to say it, but he critiqued Rome and Antioch in particular. Uh, He said that the Orontes River from Antioch had flowed into the Tiber uh, and flooded the city of Rome with the wickedness of Antioch. 
So Antioch is known for its, its sort of depraved uh, ethics and, and its lifestyle. And so that's pretty amazing because in this city, right, with all this sensuality, with all this immorality, with all this spiritual darkness, this is where the disciples are first called Christians. And this is actually, we saw a little video from what, what we're a part of in missions uh, in the Philippines today. Uh, Antioch is really the birthplace of foreign missions. Uh, we see this in Acts 13. And the, the preaching team in Antioch was top notch. Like amazing. Like if this is your staff, it's amazing, right? In the first century, they've got Barnabas, Paul, and Peter. Pretty good preaching rotation. In the second century, uh, century. They've got Ignatius and Theophilus. Amazing. In the third and the fourth, they have Lucian, Theodore, and then the golden mouth himself, Chrysostom. So incredible. If you don't know any of those names, come find me and I'll give you some church history books and you can uh, go on a, a, a nerd trail into the history of the church. It's pretty cool. We see this again and again, though, in the history of the church. We see it here at Antioch that God's light will shine brightest in dark places. I used to have a professor in Bible college who would say, uh, you know, when they show diamonds on TV or in commercials, many times they'll put a black backdrop behind it and shine a light on the diamond so that all the facets of the beauty of the diamond are shown. And this is true throughout the history of God's people, whether it be an individual person's life or what God does in a place that where it is darkest, God's light shines the brightest. So, so I want to just spend our time this morning Thinking about this question, why are the believers first called Christians here in Antioch? So let me start again in verse 19. If you have a Bible, you can follow along. It's kind of our practice to sort of go a little section by section. And so we're going to start in verse 19 again, where Jimler read from. I'm reading from the ESV, which is those blue Bibles that are in the seats around you somewhere. If you didn't bring one, uh, it says this. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution, so little review, right? Persecution broke out in the church in Jerusalem and people fled. That's what they do. Those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, spreading the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, praise God for these some of them, right? Because this is how eventually we heard the gospel. Men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists too, preaching the Lord Jesus. Now you might remember the Hellenists are Greek-speaking Jews. So what we see first off is that the persecution that's been happening in Acts has sort of thrown two buckets or two groups of believers into other parts of the world. The first group shares the good news of Jesus with only those who are Jewish. But the second was willing to share the gospel both with Jews and with Gentiles because they are Hellenized. They are Greek speaking. And so perhaps they're not so attached to the Jewish prejudices that we saw God deal with Peter about last week. And so these these unnamed Jews from the island. I hear that microphone, too, just in case you guys are wondering. It's not you. I hear it. These are unnamed Jews from the uh, the island of Cyprus and Cyrene in North Africa. So uh, this is just a critique that I hear so much that Christianity is just a white man's religion. Well, it didn't start where white people lived. It started in, in this place in the world in North Africa. There are believers this early. So just take that for what it is. And, and these guys have no official direction. They have no official commission. They're not commissioned from the church in Jerusalem. Go to the Gentiles. No. All they have is love for Jesus 
They have, and they take the message of Jesus to Antioch. And I mean, honestly, it's like they don't even realize how radical a thing they're actually doing. That they're part of fulfilling this idea that from two groups of people, Jews and Gentiles, Jesus has broken down the wall of hostility and he's going to make one people. They're, they're doing it. They, they don't have any kind of commission. They just take the message of Jesus and they are the first believers to bring the light of Jesus into the darkness of this pagan place. And so what we see is that Antioch was evangelized, listen, not by apostles, but by average church people, by just regular church folk, members of Jesus church, Christ's body who are willing to just be who they are, to talk about what they love. Wherever persecution sends these Christians, they begin doing what comes to them like breathing. They begin sharing through word and through deed, just through life, Christ to whoever they find around them. This is just everyday believers empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. And look what they're doing. They're absolutely tearing down the power of paganism on the lives of so many people in Antioch. It's incredible. What's the result? Look at verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turn to the Lord. Again, no apostles, no deacons, no elders, no ecclesiastical structure. Now, those are all good things that will come later. But right here, it's just the hand of the Lord turning a bunch of pagans into Christians. Amazing. So now there's this, there's this, imagine this sort of heavenly energy that's right in the middle of this materialistic, this spiritual darkness of Antioch. This is so foreign to the darkness of this environment that it actually alters, think about this, alters the vocabulary of the whole city and really for the rest of history, the entire world. We have a new category of people with a new nickname, Christians. Now, there's other instances in church history of sort of nicknames being given to those who follow Jesus. Just a couple quick examples. Uh, your favorite oatmeal, Quaker, that's a nickname for Christians, right? It, it's named for how they were described to tremble or to quake to the word of God. Or our friends, the Methodists, one of my close friends here in the neighborhood is a United Methodist pastor. They're named because of their sort of systematic, methodical pursuit of holiness and relationship with God. So there's all these nicknames throughout church history. So as we think about our church family, what spiritual nickname do you think those who don't yet know Jesus around us would give us? Would they, would they associate us with Christ? What spiritual nickname would we have? Are we living in such a way in our following of Jesus that people around us are having a problem describing us? Is that true of us? I want to invite you to just let that question sort of rattle around in your heart and in your mind this week. Are your neighbors like, man, I, I don't know what to do with this neighbor of mine. They're always talking about this Jesus. I don't know what to call them. I don't agree with them at all, but they're passionate about it. And they keep talking to me about it. And they keep being kind and generous to me. And I don't know what to do with it. Now, back in Antioch, there's so much going on that before long, the church in Jerusalem hears the word, right? And this is kind of a big deal. They're not like seeing it on Twitter. They're not getting an email. Nobody's texting, right? They're hearing about this just by people traveling between those places. And they hear what's going on in Antioch, and they decide to send Barnabas to check things out. Now, Barnabas, if you think about this from an earthly perspective and a heavenly perspective, he makes total sense to be the guy for this. 
Um, he's raised on the island of Cyprus, and so he himself is a Hellenistic Jew. Uh, it's likely that he, he probably had personal friends among those Christians in Antioch because some of them are from Cyprus as well. So maybe he knows some of them personally. We know that he is highly respected by the Jerusalem church for his holiness, his piety, his generosity. Uh, he sold his property on Cyprus and laid it at the apostles' feet. You might remember from the just before the story of uh, those two who were judged in Acts 4. Uh, and, and Barnabas was a proven encourager. He was a reconciler, the one who actually brought Saul together with the church in Jerusalem. This is what Barnabas does. And so he's a perfect choice for this job to sort of be like a delegated investigator into what, like what's going on in Antioch. And so verse 23, it says that when he came and he saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. I love how uh, Barnabas is even encouraging us as the, the readers of this book, even in how he's described here by the narrator in Acts. Barnabas, what? He saw the grace of God. First thing he wants you to know about what Barnabas saw there, that he saw the grace of God. He could have easily seen the situation a little differently. These people are new, untaught Christians, Right? They're neophyte Christians, if you will. They still have the sort of the Antiochian culture as part of them. Like you and I do when we come to faith. Whatever culture we come from, we bring it with us. Some of them probably, and you've probably heard this, someone described like this before, right? Some of them had a long way to go in their morality, in their ethics, in their lives. But what does Barnabas see? He doesn't see, man, we got a lot of work to do. What does he see? First thing it says is he saw the grace of God. He could see evidence of the fruit of the spirit of love, joy, and peace in these people. And then what does the text say about him? He was glad. So he saw the grace of God in these brand new Christians, and he was excited about it. He was glad about it. So what does he do? He simply exhorts them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Put that in my nomenclature. He tells them, just keep on keeping on. You've come pretty far. I see the grace of God. Now just keep pursuing Jesus. Sometimes I think that's all we need to hear in our walk with Jesus. Some, some of us need to just be reminded, hey, just keep doing the same thing. Just keep pursuing Jesus. There isn't some other pursuit that Jesus is getting you to. Like this thing where you're pursuing Jesus and you're stumbling and you're, you're trying, but you keep coming back to Jesus. That's it. That's what it is. This is following Jesus. And it's in that pursuit that you grow. Yesterday, I was um, herding cats. Uh, I mean, coaching my daughter's eight-year-old soccer team. Um, same thing. Uh, we won both our games, by the way, 2-0. Um, and during halftime... This is exactly what I told them. I know the kids all tell, oh, the winning's not everything, coach. And I'm like, well, fun is everything. And you know what's fun? Winning. Uh, so um, we, we had a couple games yesterday. And during halftime of one of the games, this is exactly what I told them. They, yesterday, they were starting to make some really good progress. Me and the other uh, coach were excited about what we were seeing on the field. Were they playing perfect? No. They're eight-year-old kids. They can barely kick the ball sometimes, right? But we could see the progress. They were creating lots of good things on the field. If you know sports like basketball and hockey and soccer, it's all about creating 
scoring chances, and they were doing just that. They were doing great. They, they were creating good things on the field. And so I told them, listen, keep doing what you're doing now. Don't stop what you're doing. You might not have the exact result you want yet, but if you just keep doing what you're doing, you're going to get there. And guess what? They did. And in the process of continuing to pursue what they were pursuing imperfectly, they actually progress. And this is an example of walking with Jesus. This is how it is to follow Jesus. We just keep doing the simple things. Just keep pursuing relationship with Jesus. Keep reading your scriptures. Keep living in faithful community with other believers. And in that pursuit, what you end up with is more Jesus and more Jesus inevitably leads to more fruit of the spirit. That's just how it works. So Barnabas encouragement was perfect for the Antiochian Christians and it's perfect for us. Barnabas saw grace and then he rejoices and then with gentleness. He encourages God's people. But how is Barnabas able to do this? Right? Look at verse 24. He was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and faith. That would be a great headstone for any one of us. They were a good person full of the Holy Spirit and faith. See, Barnabas is actually the embodiment of what the believers that he wanted to encourage would become. So he's been where they are now, and he'd walked where these new Christians are walking. And so he has the ability to look past their imperfections, to look past all the things that they probably are getting wrong and see where God's at work. And as we read in verse 24, there is a great work happening. Look at verse 24. A great many people were added to the Lord. And that sounds all cool, but you know what that means for the pastors and the shepherds and the apostles there? That means there's a lot of people with a lot of needs. That need to be encouraged, and Barnabas just knows what to do. Here is where we see, I think, the paradox of Christian humility and Barnabas on display. The ministry in Antioch is going so well that Barnabas realizes this is too much for me. He is a humble, godly man, and he so he knows his limitations. I imagine Barnabas having one of those moments, maybe you've had one, where there's so much good work to do that you can't even know where to start a to-do list. You ever had that feeling? You're like, I, there's so much good stuff I feel like the Lord is calling me to do. I don't even, which one do I do first, and how do I get started? Right? I see him in the offices of First Alliance Church of Antioch. He's pacing in his office. He's in prayer. He's got a whiteboard all scribbled on. Maybe it's one of those cool whiteboards with the things that open so you can hide it. Right? And it's all scribbled on. And then he goes, you know what? And he remembers Paul. And he knows what to do. So Barnabas and Paul had seen each other last just about a decade earlier when the church in Jerusalem had sent Paul to Tarsus for safety, which is back in Acts chapter 9, and that's where Paul had stayed. Paul had been converted for a long time now. Saul had become Paul and been converted for a long time now. And so now he's not a young believer. He's a well-seasoned servant of Jesus. Uh, a lot of commentators that I read think that a lot of things happened during those years that we don't even know about. But some of them we do. And, and for sure it's safe to assume that Paul continued his preaching ministry during that decade. 
or so, eight to ten years. Maybe this is when he was persecuted and beaten, as we see in 2 Corinthians 11. Maybe this is, this is probably when he experienced the loss he describes in Philippians 3, when he's disowned by his family. Maybe even the incredible experience of being caught up into the third heaven that he writes about in 2 Corinthians 12. If you don't know about that, 2 Corinthians 12, you should read about it. It's pretty cool. Uh, maybe that happened during these years, right? But the point is that Saul, who is now Paul, is no longer a new Christian. He's not a baby Christian anymore. His Christian life, his Christian theology have been shaped. They've been battle tested. They've been matured. And what we know about him is that he is full of Jesus. Listen to Paul's words in Galatians 2. This isn't a new Christian who writes this. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now up to this point, we've seen Barnabas show his spiritual maturity in a few different ways, right? We saw his generosity to the church community back in Acts chapter 4. We saw in Acts chapter 9, we, we see him sort of lay his reputation at risk when he sticks up for Paul uh, to the apostles. But here we find something I think even more deep and more beautiful because Barnabas is going to actually give his preeminence away to Paul. That's a pretty big deal. He's going to pass sort of the mantle of preeminence of the faith along to Paul. Barnabas is older. He's more respected. In many ways, he's more qualified than Paul. But when he asked Paul to help him in Antioch, in verse 25 of our text, and then they go on a missionary journey together, Paul begins to play a bigger role than Barnabas. Right? The story begins here as Barnabas and Saul, but actually it's going to become Paul and Barnabas, and it's going to stay that way. That's important. This is such, I think, an incredible example of the way that the fruit of the Spirit shows itself in the life of a believer who is ready and, and willing to really live in community and in fellowship with other believers. Barnabas doesn't need to make a name for himself because he knows there's only one name that matters, and that's Christ. He, he doesn't seem to be worried about losing whatever preeminence and whatever popularity he has, because all he cares about is getting Jesus to people. What's apparent from this text is that the Holy Spirit is going to bless this in Barnabas. See, when Paul traveled with Barnabas to what we might say darkest Antioch, right? They were incredible together. Amazing together. They complement one another beautifully. They, they complement one another's gifts and strengths like we want to see in ministry, in the church, and, in, and among yourselves in the church. God has gifted each one of you differently. And this is thanks to the orchestration of the Spirit of God in Paul and Barnabas's life. Barnabas we see as sort of, if we were going to do prophet, priest, and king, Barnabas maybe is the priest. He's empathetic. He's with the people. Paul has this razor-sharp intellect, and he could preach, and he could lead incredibly. He has this apostolic leadership that's big, and he thinks big ideas, and Barnabas is there to pray with people at church. And so together, with the Spirit's power working through them, they become this sort of unstoppable force for Jesus in that city. Now, this dark city in our text, as we kind of wrap it up today, the, the city of Antioch is, again, so bewildered. So 
dumbfounded by the way that these followers of Jesus lived that it doesn't have the ability to put them in any category and so a new name has to be born. Maybe there was a mocking sort of edge to this name and maybe you've heard the word Christian used that way in our day and age. I certainly have. Maybe there's even some anger because these Jesus followers, these Christians, they are a contradiction to the way of life in Antioch. And listen, you are a contradiction to the way of life wherever you live. There are ethics and there are ways of being and things that we just think are normal that Jesus stands opposed to. The, the new term itself, Christian, was even sort of a, uh, we said this, a thrown together name of two languages, part Greek, part Latin. But it really does perfectly sum it up. Followers of Christ, Christians, or some people would even go so far to say you can define it as little Christ's. You're being described as a little version of Christ. Jesus Christ is such a central part. I, I even hate that language. He's not a central part. He is your life. I mean, Paul says when Christ, who is your life, appears... He's not one of the categories in your life. He's not a, a, a section of your life. He is your very life. And that's so true in the lives and the words of these followers of Jesus in Antioch that no other name could capture the reality of what we are, church. We're the same thing as these believers in Antioch. Christian is a name that we should seek to be worthy of being called. Yes, there is a call for us in that, a call to obedience, a call to holiness. That is part of walking with Jesus. But the beauty of the gospel is that the person for whom we are named has already done the work required for you to get this name. And his very spirit is now at work in you, empowering you to be who he has made you to be. When you come to Christ, you're a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. And so now, as my, I like to use this metaphor, you have a coach. You're on the soccer team. You're terrible at soccer. The worst. But you're on the team, and your coach will never kick you off the team. And so now the rest of your life is knowing I'm never getting kicked off the team, and I can spend my time becoming what my coach has told me that I am. Jesus has made you his children. He has allowed us to be adopted into the family of God. And we, we can't get kicked out of the family of God. You can't get unadopted. And so now that means you're free to pursue being what he has made you to be. So, so as we wrap up today, we think about that question. What nickname would those around us give our church community? I just want to gently press on you the same thing that Barnabas saw. God is at work. In this place, in this church, among this group of people, right? I just want to gently press on us that I, I see evidence of it all over the place. Hopefully you do as well. And so just keep coming back to following Jesus. Just keep doing the small things. Just keep on keeping on. There isn't some other next level Christianity that, oh, if I could just get to that, then it would be real. No, there's no other next level of the gospel that you need to get to. There isn't some new revelation that you need. What you need, you already have in Jesus. So just remain faithful. Just keep coming back to him and asking him for forgiveness again, asking him for more of his spirit again, re reading his word again, spending time in the quiet with him again in silence and solitude. Keep doing those things. Keep pursuing Jesus and you will become who Jesus has made you to be. 
You will become a people of love and joy and peace in that process of following him and getting more of him as you follow him. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this, uh, this historical account of what happened in Antioch. We thank you that through a lot of steps, we're part of that lineage as a church family. That out of Jerusalem, this church was planted and out of Antioch, churches were planted that planted churches that planted churches that ended up about 100 years ago planting a church here in Baltimore and we're in it now. And so we thank you for that heritage. We thank you that you have brought us together. And, and Jesus, I just ask that your spirit would just keep prodding us to just do the, the little things. Spend more time with you to let go of the things that we think are essential and normal if they're not part of what you're calling us to. That you would help us to pursue, as we see in the life of Barnabas, that we would look for the grace of God at work in other people and just encourage them, hey, keep doing that. Keep pursuing that grace, because that's going to get you to the finish line. We thank you that we can come together and worship. We don't take it lightly. We remember, even a couple years ago, we were not able to do this. And Father, we think of those around the world today who are um, wishing they could gather together but can't for any number of reasons, from storms to wars to all these different things. Father, we don't take it for granted that we get to gather in this room, be with one another, and worship you and hear from your word. And we thank you for the time we spent. And we pray this is all for your glory. Amen.